Hey, Michael here. Uh, you will now hear uh, some episodes of the Michael Girdley show that we had branded differently uh, called Unusual Profits or some such like that. Same show, same person, just me interviewing people and producing content that could be helpful on your journey and mine as well. So uh, with no further ado, here's the episode. Hey, Michael here. Uh, sponsor for today's show is actually uh, a product that I'm a part of called DM Bridge. Uh, and what DM Bridge is, uh, is a service that we built uh, to solve the problem that Twitter's direct messaging functionality is a total mess. So we built DM Bridge to help you fix that. Um, a lot of the other solutions uh, do things like requiring you to install a whole nother inbox. We didn't want another inbox, so we created DM Bridge. And what it does is it takes all of your Twitter DMs and has them appear inside of your email inbox. So you can reply to them just like it's a regular email. You see them just like it's a regular email. You can search them later like it's one of your regular emails, all just by using DM Bridge. So uh, we're currently live with the product. I uh, would love for you to sign up and become a customer. Uh, and check it out. So you can find that at dmbridge.app uh, and go on there, put in your name uh, and be either part of the beta or join us as part of the live use of the product. And again, check it out, dmbridge.app. Uh, welcome to Unusual Profits. I'm your host, Michael Gurdley. Uh, very excited uh, to record today's episode um, with one of my Twitter BFFs, uh, Matt Wills, and we are going to dig into the beautiful, wonderful world of Mez lending, uh, which as a business nerd, I'm fascinated by, and I'm also starting to get exposed to it in my day-to-day. -day. Uh, and we're going to go start from the the zero level foot and then work our way down as deep as we can. Uh, and I think it'll be fascinating. So Matt, thanks for being here today. Michael, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, by the way, I had a nightmare last night that I mispronounced your name and I was like, oh, Oh, like, so it's being a podcast host is like the weirdest, like, nightmare set. I guess people, you know, it's the equivalent of when you were a little kid, you kept having that dream of going to school naked. That's the, that's the thing for, for, for so a it's actually Willis. We actually pronounce it Willis, but okay. my ancestors were poor and didn't know how to spell. And, um, you know, but look, I've, I've answered to a whole lot worse in my life. So no, no oh, challenges. Man. Well, I guess my nightmare just came true. Oh, so anyway, Matt Willis, thank you for being here. Um, no problem. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to take take about a minute and tell us about you know how you got to where you are today and and what you do. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my uh, background is in investing. Uh, I uh, started out life after business school managing a corporate bond portfolio for a small insurance company here in Salt Lake City. Uh, called Beneficial Life. And uh, by the time I was done at Beneficial, I had uh, I had their corporate bond portfolio, I had their equity portfolio, and I had a portfolio of alternative investments, which was a smattering of other things, real estate, uh, as well as some funds. One of those funds was a MES lending uh, fund. And so uh, we, uh, I went off after Beneficial and did some other things. Uh, and then if you fast forward to about 10 years ago, uh, I got a call one day at, at my office from my dad and my dad, uh, dad was a senior executive with some big, big businesses for a long time, made some money in his career, uh, and called me up, uh, and said, look, I, I'm not getting any younger. I can't do it anymore. What can I pay to manage our investments? And, uh, I kind of chuckled and said, well, I'm not going to charge my own parents to give them some investment advice. And, and dad said, well, 
you know, you can't retire to the beach yet. What are you going to do? And, and I said, well, I have an idea. And so I started about 10 years ago managing a small family office for my parents. And then about nine years ago, I took my money and some of that family office money and spun out of the family office a mezz lending business. And uh, the idea was to take, uh, at the time, what was a fairly sophisticated uh, approach to mezz lending uh, and bring it down market. Mez lending is the way to think about Mez is essentially as a uh, a private high yield kind of product, uh, and so the approach was to say, hey, this type of capital is typically available to big businesses uh, for the right situations, and uh, to go downstream, we would go downstream and try to make it available to to small and medium sized businesses. And so that's what I do today. That's great. So, so if I can put some numbers around kind of, well, first of all, um, you know, so mezz lending is this, if you have bank debt and then you have equity, so people own portions of the business, the mezz kind of sits in the middle of that and it, it, it fills in a gap between the two. Is that kind of how, how we should think about what Yeah, mezz is? look, middle of the capital stack subordinated to a commercial bank, if a commercial bank is involved, uh, but it can also be in a senior position if a company does not have bankable collateral, right? You know, somebody thinks they're, uh, you know, they're bankable. The bank kind of hems and haws and says, hey, we don't really love your collateral. Uh, you know, a, a, a mes lender or a private lender can can step in in those situations. Got it. And so, so then in terms of kind of the numbers of where you play, you brought some of the things that you saw kind of in the middle market and, and brought it down into almost a small small business and I think. So what is those, what what kind of like loan amounts would you see kind of at each one of those kind of steps as you yeah. work your way down to smaller? Yeah, so uh, for us, a typical check size or how much we're looking to invest is one to five, two to six, two to seven million dollars per deal. And uh, the way to think about that as it relates to company size is typically companies can go out and get one turn, uh, one times their EBITDA, uh, you know, half time their EBITDA, one turn of EBITDA uh, is, is about right. So think about, you know, I'm looking for companies that have two to, two to $10 million, two to $15 million of EBITDA. Uh, that generally relates to companies that are, you know, ten million to a hundred million dollars of revenue, uh, you know, depending on profit margins and growth and and those kinds of things. Got it. And then, so, how do the loans, the mes loans, get structured? So, you know, there's debt has just straight interest on it. You know, with with that they have first lien on on things. If you just have straight debt, and then there's the mes notes or the mes debt that I've seen structured as, you know, a preferred equity type instrument, and that allows you to get past kind of this eighteen percent usury laws that we have, uh, in some cases, and price in that risk. Um, is there a mes that's just straight interest, like it's like, like I see the hard money lenders guys do sometimes, which is like, okay, what's well, a fifteen percent straight interest loan, like with you know, and that's how it's going to work. How, 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 how are the different flavors of kind of mez shake out and how should, how should you think about those options? There's 21 flavors of, of mez debt. You can structure it however you want, Michael. The, the, let's talk about the industry and then maybe where I'm, I'm a little different. The industry uh, will typically structure things as a note 
with some sort of equity characteristics aside from that note, right? Warrants, options to purchase equity in the company. Uh, and so a lot of the industry is out there, in my opinion, gathering up lottery tickets so that they can, uh, you know, pay out their L- investors or their LPs uh, on the backs of the high interest rate and then uh, can gather up uh, equity claim checks uh, to really drive performance for their fund. Uh, and so with those, typically, sometimes it's structured as a preferred equity deal, but usually it's structured as a note uh, with options or warrants uh, attached to that note. I think usually that's the case because the lender wants to be able to go file a claim against the assets of the company, uh, and in order to file uh, a UCC saying that you have a security interest in the assets of the company, uh, it's easier to do that against a note than a, against a preferred equity structure. I take a little bit of a different tact, uh, where I don't, I'm not looking to uh, generate equity positions from the from the loan deals that I do, uh, and so I charge an interest rate. My interest rate tends to be a little bit higher. Than other people. So if the industry is out lending at 10 or 12 percent, I'll lend at 15 or 16 percent. Uh, and uh, then uh, there's, there's for me, there's two additional costs associated with doing business with me. Typically, an origination fee, uh, that's two to three percent associated with getting into the deal. Uh, and then uh, I'll have the company reimburse me for out-of-pocket legal expenses uh, to do the deal. And then, like I said, I don't take equity or warrants or or other things, uh, in the deals that I do, but a lot of the industry does. Yeah. So why have you decided to take kind of this alternative path? Do you just see that as a a competitive advantage? Does it match more to your personality as a lender? Is it, is it something that, well, I I guess I haven't asked if y'all are operating just solely off of your balance sheet or if you're using other people's money, like how, how did you end up kind of deciding, okay, well, I'm going to be different kind of in this, in this vein versus the games other people are playing? Yeah, for two or three reasons. The first is we are investing our own money. Uh, and so we don't need to, uh, we can get comfortable risk-adjusted returns for our purposes just by charging interest and management fees uh, and not subjecting ourselves to the equity. The second is, I'm honest and I mean it when I say it, but I'm not smart enough to uh, try to think about me being in a both debt and equity position in a capital stack at the exact same time. Uh, There's a lot of people out there that are probably smart enough to do that. It's just not a game uh, that I really play. Uh, The last reason, though, is, is maybe the most important, which is for me... By not taking equity or warrants up front, I'm able to save kind of the equity conversation in order to structure a deal so that I am even more protected uh, from a lending perspective uh, than I would otherwise be. And we can talk more about that uh, if you'd like to, but, you know, the short answer is... uh, you know, I kind of fell into that more protected place because it wasn't a natural fit for me to take equity or warrants anyway. 
I guess the last point on taking equity or you know options or warrants in a deal is that uh, I don't have a whole lot of interest in being three or five percent or even seven or ten percent of of a company. It's pretty easy for a lot of small business owners to ignore me uh, if I'm three percent or five percent of the business, uh, and I, you know. You need an awful lot of things to go right for that to be a meaningful position. Uh, if I'm going to be a small piece of an overall business, I'd rather just think about it as an equity deal and go invest as an equity deal and not muddy the waters, uh, you know, with the debt as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, I guess this this is a great time to dig into the next thing. My my dad uh, used to have a great quote. He's, he'd say, "It's easy to lend money. Getting paid back is the hard part." Um, so, so what are the what are the structures to protect you? Right. So you're sandwiched between, say, if in some of these cases a bank loan, and then there's the equity holders behind you, and so you're kind of this, uh, you know, this mayonnaise and ham in the middle. Like, how? What are the structures to protect you, and what are the different options there? you know, to, to make sure you're going to get paid back, um, you know, and compensated for the risk you're taking on. Well, I'd get along well with your dad. I, I always joke that if I wrote a book one day, the title of the book would be, Hey, the best case scenario is getting my money back, you know, at the end of the day. And, and you know, hopefully you collect a little interest along the way, but, um, look, risk management is all in the structure of the deal. And, uh, you have to make sure that you do due diligence. You have to make sure that uh, you examine the company uh, and you're comfortable with the risk that you're taking uh, going in. Perhaps the most important question that I ask potential borrowers is, hey, how do I get my money back at the end mm-hmm. of the day? Right. And and if a, if a potential client does not have a great answer to that question, I'm probably not terribly interested in the deal at the end of the day. But one of the more interesting things that I've done to try to incent a borrower to want to pay me back is to say to the borrower, and and this is what I was alluding to earlier on the equity question, hey, I don't want equity. I don't want warrants. I don't want to own your business. What I want at the end of the day is I want my money back. And, And because of that, I'm going to put a feature in the documents of my that says that if you default and only if you default, my note all of a sudden becomes convertible uh, and it becomes convertible into equity of your business. uh, One that is not at a fair valuation. It's it's going to become convertible into some really, really large uh, percentage of your business and it's going to be equity uh that uh you want to really figure out how not to bring on to your capital stack uh it's going to be preferred equity it's going to carry uh kind of punitive shareholder rights and and preferred dividends and and, and, and those kinds of things and and you really want to to avoid doing that and what that does is that heavily incents the borrower to want to do what I want them to do, which is to give me my money back at, at the end of the day. And it's not a, I mean, look, people, we give people, you know, 
standard cure periods. So I'm I, I'm not trying to trick people into those kind of default options. I'm not trying to take over the business. What I'm trying to do is to provide an incentive so that the borrower does what I want them to do, and and it's it's proven to be very effective uh, over the years on on a number of different deals at helping them to figure out. Okay, I don't really want to sell fifty percent of my business for you know three million dollars or four million dollars. I think it's worth significantly more than that. So. I'm going to start early in the if I can't afford to pay Matt back after you know two or three or four years, I'm going to start the process early and I'm going to go out and I'm going to raise money at a better valuation so that I don't have to give up that equity to Matt. Yeah, it makes sense. So, so to put that in context, it sounds like a warrant has the Mez lender, you know, able to convert that into equity or buy equity at a discounted price on the upside case. You're actually optimizing for okay. How do you get protected such that somebody's really disinterested in the downside case, right? And that allows you to to price your risk in at at a lower level, right? Um, I think I think that's right. I, look, I'm managing the risk, but the other way to think about it is in any kind of lending relationship. If things go really south, what's going to happen is. Uh, the lender is going to start some sort of a legal process, uh, and that could be a foreclosure process that's initiated by a lender. That could be a bankruptcy process that's initiated by the borrower. But what they're essentially doing is starting a formal process to come to some kind of a term. And what that term looks like at the end, of, what that agreement looks like at the end of the day is probably some hey, the lender is going to take most of the assets, maybe management and, and the previous ownership stays involved so that they can manage you know, and, and get the business back on, on, on better feet. But it's correct to say that what I'm essentially doing is pre-negotiating that foreclosure process, right? And, and I'm essentially saying, hey, foreclosure is messy, foreclosure is expensive, we don't really want to go through that legal process at the end of the day. Let's agree that we want to avoid that at all costs. And here's a framework to allow us to avoid them. Yeah, I dig it. Well, so I guess tying onto that, one of the things I wanted to ask you about today, you know, my my buddy had like an $80 million a year company that he started. And it was not a very bankable business. There were no no real assets and it had grown so quickly they didn't have a lot of track record of of earnings. So they couldn't really do, you know, an earnings or cash flow based borrowing. Um so he went to some guys uh out of New York from the wrong side of New York. And, you know, it turned out those guys were in the loan to own business. Um uh-huh. you know, so I'm thinking about this from the perspective of, okay, I'm a potential borrower, like who who are is that? Have you heard that same phrase? This loan to own thing, and like, how do you? Sure. Who are who are those people in the universe of Mez lenders? I don't want to say anything negative about any of my my competitors or anything, <laughs> uh, Michael. You know, it's it's you know, but the look. I would encourage uh, anybody listening to this that if you're going to enter into a lending relationship. Understand how you're going to pay off that loan at the end of the day. Uh, mezzanine finance or private lending or, or call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, 
is is usually I won't say always, but usually uh, very tough. And you know, the, uh, you think commercial bankers talk about wanting to be in a relationship and and, and those kind of things. Most people in my business. Uh, they're in it to watch out for themselves, right? And and they want to make money, and and a lot of people view it as a backdoor way into the equity of your business at the end of the day. And so, if you don't understand how you're going to repay that loan, you know, whenever it's over, um, you're going to have a tough you're going to have a tough time. Yeah, it makes total sense. I and I felt really sad for for my buddy because he had a you know there were basically triggers in the note that he had that automatically like if they missed just a couple of payments um the board he lost board control right and then equity would like switch over to these folks um and next thing you know like i mean i think he's still suing these guys <laughs> like it was just really bad um so look it's, it's common right i mean i i got a call once from from a local company here in utah that they were dealing with a similar kind of group on the East Coast, uh, down in Florida, and um, they were basically trying to make life miserable so that uh, they could take over the business at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, when you find yourself in that situation, uh, you can either fight it legally, uh, which is a long, expensive, kind of brutal process, and you don't have that many levers, right? Um, or you can try to find a white knight who's willing to provide the capital to to replace them in the capital stack. And the sad truth is you usually end up with that kind of a lender for a reason, which means you don't have a whole lot of options for that type of capital. And, uh, you know, so that can be, that can be difficult, you know, at the end of the day. I, I, Maybe I should just put a plug in there at that point for, and yes, read your documents. You know, the, the documents can be long and dense and, and not a whole lot of fun to read, uh, but read your documents and hire outside counsel. But yes, read the documents, understand what it is that you're signing. Totally makes sense. So at, um, so just in terms of the universe of, of how you think about what you're doing, you know, you had a great tweet where you drew a, a very hand-drawn version of kind of the the universe of kind of mes lending returns, right? Um, so I don't know if I have a good question about this. I was hoping to just get some color like like <laughs> about how, well, I mean, it's beautiful. I could pull it up on the screen, but um, kind of how you're thinking about your, your part of the universe potential investments, because I think it's also one of the really interesting things you're doing is you're not just a straight mes lender, right? You're also managing, you know, in-house money that you guys are deploying in multiple different strategies and with different managers. So just just kind of your thoughts on on where you fit into kind of that whole universe of potential potential areas of deployment. Well, look, we got into this because we're like everybody else trying to find good investments, right? And so the the dirty secret of mes lending is that I can get superior risk-adjusted returns in mes lending that I can get anywhere else. Okay. And Michael, you've been around, uh, you know, you've, uh, and you touch a lot of spheres in a lot of different places. You talk to any private equity group or venture capital group uh, in the market, and they're going to talk to potential investors and say, we can't promise you 
specific returns, you know, no prior results are not a guarantee of future success, all those types of things. But we target 25, 30, 35% kind of returns. The reality is top decile private equity or VC kind of returns are, let's just say, significantly less than that. Uh, if you're talking about the hedge fund world, uh, it's the exact same thing. And maybe what's common across all of those different kinds of asset types is you and I can't get in the top decile kind of funds anyway. We don't have access to them. You know, we may get lucky by picking a young emerging manager uh, and and experience terrific results, but that's risky, right? Then that's that's difficult to do. And so in the mes world, I can pound out mid to high teen kind of IRRs uh, that are where I'm taking significantly less risk uh, than I have to in other places uh, to do that. Now, we can talk about what's happened here recently, right? But but returns are coming down. And so where I used to be able to generate mid to high teen kind of IRRs, now people are talking about, hey, will you lend to us at 12? Will you lend to us at, at 10? And for me, I have to really go back to my experience at Beneficial Life. So, you know, when I talked at the beginning about managing a billion dollar corporate bond portfolio. A billion dollars sounds like real money. Um, in the in a corporate bond world or in a you know in an insurance kind of environment, a billion dollars is is nothing. Right. And and one of the lessons from beneficial was you have to use your size to your advantage. And you you don't you not only do you not have to swing at every pitch, you can't swing at every pitch. Because if I go out and I start lending to people taking substandard returns, uh, even if that's where the market is, then at the end of the day, you know, I've used up all my capital and I'm out of money, you know, for when a really fat pitch comes along. And so, you know, I, what I see, in my opinion, is a mistake today that a lot of people are making is to go sit there and say, hey, I couldn't get 8% on an investment you know, six months ago, but now that investment is trading at 8% or 10%. That's really attractive. I'm going to go make that investment. Well, what risk are you taking to go get that 8 or 10%, right? And and so for us, you know, back to your question, MES fits into this kind of overall investment landscape where we think, you know, the overall kind of risk-adjusted returns are very attractive. Yeah. And so for for you personally, um, and as the family office, why actively do this as opposed to what I've seen in some of your, your other strategies, which is working with specialized managers, right? Do you do you feel like you're running a risk of kind of being uh well what I am trying to, I'm just trying to say it in a way that wasn't offensive, but uh but you know what I'm saying, just being like a dilettante at it when you know that's typically a recipe for you know, for challenges. It's like me going into a healthcare deal. Like, I just don't know anything about it. So how, how do you think about that in, in terms of why why this is something you guys have decided to be in this business in particular? Well, the short answer is I, I, I know this world from uh, after my beneficial life and corporate bond experience. Uh, I was a commercial banker. Was a, I was in the commercial banking world uh, for a couple of years at Zion, with Zions Bank here in Salt Lake. 
and so lending and uh, you know the kind of the credit markets is is something that I'm comfortable in. Uh, but you absolutely have to know your sphere of of competency, as they say, right? Sphere of competence. And at the end of the day, I mean, one of the industries that I will not lend against is real estate, right? Because what makes one piece of ground better or worse than another piece of ground? I have absolutely no idea. And, and you know, hats off to the people that do. Uh, but for me, you know, that's just not a world that I know. And I guess the other answer to your question is when you start talking about businesses, we feel like, you know, the risk at the end of the day here is business risk. It's not really, you know, interest rates are high enough for us. It's not really interest rate risk. It's not really duration risk uh, that we're talking. It's it's business risk and it's operating risk. And we feel like we have a good enough understanding of operating businesses uh, that we can intelligently make decisions uh, and allocate some capital to the strategy. Yeah, totally makes sense. So, um, so I think that's a great picture of kind of how the landscape and how the industry works and how what what you do works. So, kind of double clicking a little bit, how you know how how is that top of funnel created for a typical mezzalender or and or for for you, right? Like, how are you how are you seeing deals and you know and spending time preparing for today? There's like a lot of meslenders, you know, the Cerebuses of the world and stuff like that. They work specifically with private equity sponsors and they know, okay, when this hedge fund or this private equity fund comes in, like we, we've worked with them before and we're going to be spreading our risk across their whole portfolio. You know, how is the top of funnel typically built for, for a mes or a specialty lender in that way? Wherever you can get deal flows, you know, deal flow is, is wonderful, but it's never enough, right? And so uh, specifically on the sponsor versus non-sponsor question, uh, we have the advantage in, in the size that we're playing with that we can work with small independent sponsors mostly uh, in that size. But a lot of our business and, and the loans that we do are just with owner-operated companies. And so we're agnostic between the two. Uh, we have sponsors or independent sponsors that we that we deal with, and we're always looking at deals uh, you know, with those. But it's also word of mouth, right? You know, it's 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 companies hear about us or they're talking with their what I would call the professional set, right? Accountants, lawyers, uh, insurance salesmen. Hey, how's business? Well, you know, I'm thinking about doing this, and uh, you know, they have a need, and uh, well, I heard about this guy, and you know, there's a few of us around, but but not many, right? And so, I, you know, I'm pretty confident that we see. Maybe not every deal that's kind of in our wheelhouse, but a, a, a pretty high percentage of the deals that are in our wheelhouse, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty comfortable that we're seeing them. Yeah, super cool. And then, are you geographically limited at all, or are you mostly, or is it just your network strong in the Mountain West, or how how do you think about where you're going to deploy capital? So for us, we're pretty much Denver West, uh, and that is is probably both a top down and a, and a bottom up from the, from the bottom up uh, perspective. I've spent a lot of time, you know, I started this business in the mountain West and, and uh, it's where my net contacts were and, and my network. And so I could just get out and, and uh, you know, generate deal flow that way. My wife refers to it as the lunch circuit. Right. And then, and then I, 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 I you know, 
deal flow's not as good. Okay, time to go take some people to lunch and, and you know, see what's around. But then I made a conscious decision. You know, the first one that I did was Phoenix Scottsdale down in Arizona. I said, that's a market that I'm interested in. I want to go. Well, you show up in the market, you take some people to lunch, you, you attend a conference or two, you meet some more people and ask them who else you should take to lunch. And, and pretty soon you've got deal flow in, in Phoenix Scottsdale and in Denver was next for me. And I went and did the same thing in Denver. And, you know, and, and so from a bottom-up perspective, I could kind of grow geographically, uh, organically that way. From a top-down perspective, the East Coast is tough for me. I, I love the East Coast. We lived on the East Coast for for a few years. Um, I just don't want to get on a four or five hour plane ride if I don't have to get on a four or five hour plane ride to go do diligence of uh, of a deal. And so not, you know, nothing against the business communities uh, there. I just, you know, it's a it's a time management piece for me. Yeah, makes total sense. Well, the, the lunch circuit has always kind of fascinated me because sounds terrible like I just want, like I don't like going to lunch like I'll go to breakfast but I don't like going to lunch and like I know I I need to do it but then I'm just like oh, I'll just tweet some more stuff like maybe that'll help well um, there's there's a reason I fall off and and need to need to refresh the efforts again right it makes total sense okay I think I've learned something here I'll be I feel I feel coached um, go, go to lunch Michael come on okay um thank you. Um the uh so switching gears a little bit, you know, there's in uh, most lenders have a workout group so if things go wrong, the workout group starts to handle stuff. They have a servicing group. Uh at your scale, are you all of those things? Yes. It's all it's all me. I'm uh in the first conversation I'll have with people, uh I tell them I'm the investment committee, I'm the you know, I'm the deal guy. I'm the, I, I'm everything. And so, um, you know, for better or worse, uh, you know, I'm it. Totally makes sense. And so you talk about this investment committee, like it's a committee of one, which is very, it's, it, there's upsides and downsides to that, which is, which is good. Have you ever been, been tempted to have more than a one person IC or, or other people looking at you over your shoulders to make sure you're not missing anything? Or how do you think about that? Well, I have an advantage. I have a brother, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a brother that I uh, is involved somewhat with the business uh, that we can bounce ideas off of and talk about things. Uh, and then, but I would say, uh, and, and he's terrific, but I would say the biggest uh, person that I bounce ideas off of is my dad. Uh, I learned to do business a certain way. I learned from my father. Uh, he had a very uh, successful, long uh, career. Uh, in business, and uh, you know, I call him up, and and you know, he's older now, but I call him up on a regular basis and say, "What do you think?" And uh, you know, it's it's one a great excuse to call dad, but but two, I always learn something. Yeah, well, and I, I saw you blogged about kind of your relationship and your your impact, the impact your dad had on your your career and your life, like. You know, what are the kind of material things in terms of the way you've designed this business environment for yourself that reflect some of the things you you learned from him? Well, I would say the biggest thing is is you just have to do business with people that you're comfortable with, right? And life is too short to to do business with people that you're not comfortable with. And so if there's any question about 
integrity, honesty, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, we're pretty hesitant to, to follow those opportunities. Uh, life is too short uh, to do that. Uh, and so I would say absolute integrity and honesty is, is very high on the list uh, for us, not just in lending, but across all of our, our relationships. I would say the the second thing is you just have to be, you know, he always re repeated a phrase uh, that I, I, I found out later after I started reading that he picked up from, from Peter Drucker. Uh, but the phrase was, you have to see the world as it is, not as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and, that, you know, that was an original Peter Drucker uh, comment <clears throat> I attributed to my dad, uh, you know, or to Peter through my dad. But, uh, you know. It's probably safe to assume that I am not Steve Jobs, and I cannot change the world to meet the circumstances for how I think uh, the world ought to be. I'm Matt Willis, and and I have to engage with the world as it is. Uh, and so, to the extent possible, uh, I think you have to be level-headed about uh, how does the world look today, uh, and what do you do that's the same or different uh, than the way that the world was last year or five years ago or 10 years ago. And, and where do you think that it's going? And that can apply to industries or the economy in general, or how you structure a deal or a specific business, or, you know, it, that's pretty universal advice, uh, but the world changes and, and you have to change and adapt with it. Yeah. Super cool. Well, when, when one person you, you just touched on, which I found it fascinates me. Like when I first started like digging into like how to be a better business person, like I went to the beginning, right? I was like, okay, where's the, uh, and I ended up reading like all of Peter Drucker stuff and it is some dense academic stuff, but like, it's one of the things like, I'm, I wonder if you have an opinion on it. Like nobody talks about Drucker and like the ideas in there are like so, so good. And what, I mean, what what has gone wrong with Drucker's legacy? Like, why aren't people reading that stuff? I mean, I don't even see him talked about anymore. Um, so I don't know if I don't know if you have an opinion on it. Well, I think his stuff is too long form for people now, right? Yeah. I mean, Drucker doesn't fit nicely into a Twitter world, right? And and you know, the way I would think about it is, uh, you know, you know, if you think about long form and short form. Even Drucker's short form was probably still too long for today's world, right. you know. And so I think people that are, you know, more modern and more media savvy have have crowded it about, and that's a shame because because I think he's look, I think the guy was a genius, but totally. Uh, well, actually, my it's funny you say that because my people ask like we talk about Drucker, and I'm like, okay, like here's the book you should have, and it's actually not one of his books. It's somebody who went through and created Cliff Notes where there's 365 of his ideas, each written concisely in half of a page, and you can read one per day and start to think about it as opposed to the, like, this, you know, the, the, the four-inch thick, ridiculously large book stuff that he used. Very academic, so. So, yeah. so you're just going to leave your listeners hanging or are you going to give them the name of that book, Michael? Well, I actually have a Twitter thread coming up. No, it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> oh. the, it's called The Daily Drucker. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it is what it is. But yeah, no, I mean, I am working on a thread that's going to come out in the next few weeks where I feel like, you know, I spend a lot of time with MBAs now. I don't have one. 
but like that educational part of what they got from their MBAs, there's about 20 books that assembled together gave me enough to be dangerous to where like when I talk to my MBA friends now, there's nothing really that they've been exposed to after I read those books that like I, I that they've they've seen that I haven't. Yeah, they've sought through more like case studies or whatever, but like in the end, like I know what structured finance is and I know what, you know, this this HR laws and stuff like that, just because I read that core book. So I'm gonna do a thread around that because it's the number one like question I get asked on Twitter. I think it's a great idea. So we'll see. Yet another thing I do that doesn't make me any money. Fantastic. Um so so I wanted to dig in to a little bit like what is your underwriting process? So uh, a, a borrower shows up, they send you their financials, they send you their their pro forma model, their budget and and other stuff. So what are you intaking at that point? And then kind of how does your process go uh, in terms of underwriting a deal? So maybe I'll back up a half a step. Typically what happens is somebody calls me up and they say, hey, I hear you do this. Here's my situation. And they tell me a little bit about their business. And in that first call, I explain my typical rates. I talk about, I want, you know, I'm looking to get 15% here or, you know, whatever I think, you know, just on a high level is going to make sense. And almost always the, the potential borrower says, oh, I would never pay that. I, I just am not interested in that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I, I really want to keep this to 10%. Right. And I say, hey, if you can get that, you should take that because that is a really good deal for you. Congratulations. You know. And then typically three or four months goes by and I don't hear anything. And then after three or four months, I get another call and they they kind of say, Hey Matt, remember, well, we're still looking for for this. You know, really good things are happening, but it's a tough market out there. We haven't been able to find 10% money. We'd like to re-engage with. Uh, and I smile and I say, wonderful, you know, send me some financials and let's go. So people send me financials, uh, after financials, they send me, uh, you know, we have another call, uh, that call is, uh, typically, Hey, I've been through the financials. I have questions about this and that. And the other thing, I don't understand this, explain what's going on to me. And after that call, if I'm still interested, uh, we'll set up a uh, an in-person meeting. That's my opportunity to go uh, do diligence on the company, meet the people, ask some more questions, gather a little bit more information, that kind of thing. Typically, uh, from that in-person meeting, I know whether or not I'm interested they know whether or not they're interested. Uh, if both of us are interested, I can have a term sheet to them within 24 hours. Uh, tw- you know, term sheet is kind of the point of negotiation. And uh, then from from signed term sheet uh, to close, we do a dual path of documentation and due diligence. Uh, and that process typically takes 30 days and then we close the deal and, and wire them money if, if everything checks out. And then, so in terms of kind of quantifying the risks and assumptions you're making in the deal, are you building like an internal financial model around it? Or are you just like, based on the way you're structuring things as kind of a unique lender, 
you feel like you could build in your margin of safety enough without without kind of going to that level of granularity? I don't typically go into that level of granularity because the, the, the fundamental questions for me are typically higher level than that, right? And so if the company has projections, I look at their model and I, I, I ask myself, what do you think about the assumptions that they've made moving forward? Uh, and And that's a much more important question to me than whatever assumptions I would make about their business moving forward, because at the end of the day, they know their business better than I do. And so, uh, you know, but if I think their assumptions are reasonable, then okay, that makes sense to me. If, if I think they're being overly aggressive, then that's a red flag, yeah. right? But the other thing is, usually the risks that I'm thinking about are higher level than what's going to show up in an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, you know, what's happening uh, with their customer base, what's happening from the competition, uh, what's happening in the economy, you know, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Well, it's also interesting how a lot of the function of financial models I've learned is just showing a proof of work to other people and much less what the model says, right? Like you take something to an investment committee. And they want to see that, oh, did you guys not do enough work to produce a financial model? Are you kidding me? Like, or the lender wants to see that you've modeled this out or an investor wants to see like, oh, you guys have thought through this deal. And then the smart investors will go look and see what the assumptions are. But it's interesting, this power you have because you're an investment committee of one, you don't really, <laughs> you don't really have to prove to yourself that you actually did the work and flew out to, you know, Texas or whatever to look at the deal. Um, so it's it's an interesting kind of reflection of how the utility of <laughs> of models is. Not necessarily what people think they are. I will say I own half of my business and my wife owns the other half. And she would tell you her half is the half that makes money and my half is the other half. So, <laughs> you know, there's always somebody that you have to answer to, Michael. Yeah. Well, that's it's, if it's all right to ask you a personal question, which you gave me permission before, so I will. Sure. But you, you intentionally, you know, we've gone through kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis, but you intentionally list the very first thing on your LinkedIn as you're the executive assistant. I think it's executive assistant or ch- chief whatever for your wife's business. And- I am. My wife is an artist. Uh, she, uh, she debated whether or not I could use the executive part of executive assistant, uh, but we we will have been married 25 years this summer, uh, and she decided after 24 years of marriage, I could I could probably claim to be the executive assistant. Be promoted. Well, it's so it is a unique thing. A, a person that does what you do, and you know, you're impacting a lot of stuff. And these are impactful deals. I mean, you're loaning out significant amounts of money. You're managing a significant pool of of family capital. You know what what about you wires you to want to do that. And I mean that in the nicest, kindest way possible. And as somebody who also, like, I am terrible at self-promotion. Like, it's something, like, I'm very South Texas in that way. I just can't do it. The people that are self-promoting, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Um, But anyway, the extreme self-promoters. But like, so why do that? Why, you know, why kind of set that up? Or what message are you trying to send? I do not care about status at all. There's not one bone in my body that cares about status and uh you know some people might look at decisions i've made in my personal life or my car or, you know whatever and say oh, yeah right you know of course he cares about status look i drive a bmw because i like driving a bmw not be- I, I do not care what other people think or, or say about me 
uh, in the slightest. Uh, and it's a, it's a luxury uh, that I have given the position that I'm in. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that every single day. Uh, but I just do not care about status or, or the trappings of status in any way. Yeah. So it's a very, it's a very conscious decision. And by doing that, you're, I mean, it sounds like you're intentionally sending that message out as like, hey, this is one of my core values of, of who I am as a person. Um, that, that was just a statement. Well, the, I think I'm supposed to ask questions at the end of the year. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I think that's right. But, you know, it, it's also high comedy, Michael, because, you know, rather than getting, you know, maybe it says more to what I think about LinkedIn than anything else, but, uh, you know, you know, every ad that I get from LinkedIn now says, hey, XYZ company is looking for a high potential executive assistant. You'd be perfect for this, you know, and, and all these things. It's like, oh, you don't understand. I'm sleeping with this woman. I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for another job here. So. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, so, so in the vein of kind of sending that message intentionally um, and also poking fun at LinkedIn because it deserves it. You know, what? you and I got to know each other over Twitter. Like, I love your Twitter presence. You're like one of the most positive, like constructive persons on there. Um, you know, what? what Thank is, you. why Twitter? What is it about it that that helps you in your business or, or gives you joy in terms of being on there and, and posting? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, I lurked on Twitter and had 12 followers or something for years and years and years and, and never did anything. And then I started to get, get serious about it. Um, for some reason to me, just the, you know, call it, call it FinTech, you know, not FinTech. What's the word I'm looking for, Michael? Fin, you know, FinTwit, real estate Twitter, you know, it's kind of this wonderful circle of of twitter right most people are are pretty pretty supportive you know very smart you can weed out a few bad actors pretty easily and and i've just i found it totally totally engaging i i don't know that i've ever done uh, a mez deal on twitter but i'm in i'm a limited partner in uh four or five or six other uh funds or, or investments that I have found exclusively through Twitter. So I found, you know, business relationships through Twitter. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of this, you know, supportive environment that I've found. And, you know, I don't, I don't get into political Twitter. I don't get into, um, you know, any of the gunk or, or, or the muck. I have friends that try to drag me into it every once in a while. And I just ignore it, you know, there's no point. Um, but it's, it's this wonderful, supportive environment. I, I, I will say the other thing is, I think Moses uh, had a great point. We're doing what, what a lot of us do that put deals together. When you're, when you're putting a deal together, it's this, it's this kind of really time-intensive process, right? You're super busy. You're, you're trying to, to read documents and do due diligence and, and get all of this stuff done. But when you're not in the middle of trying to close a deal, you find yourself with a whole lot of spare time on your hands, and uh, there's there's frankly not a lot to do. and And Twitter is a great way to to frankly kind of engage and and to be exposed to new ideas and, and different things uh, when you do have a little bit more spare time on your hands. Yeah, 
I like it a lot. It's been, it's made me a better person. Just like doing this podcast has made me a better person. Yes, I'm going to lunch. Yes, Matt, I will be a better person. Yes, I need to do it. Be, be a better person, Michael. Come on. Try <laughs> it. It's such. It's so hard. Um. <laughs> uh, anywho, yeah, I mean, I I do think it's interesting. You you tapped on kind of this idea that I I believe that when you see a healthy community, the surest sign of a healthy community is what happens to bad apples when they show up. Like, do they come in and dominate and become key players or do they get ejected eventually? Um, and I'm still, I think I'm still TBD on where, where Bintwit or SMB Twit or Retwit in terms of those Twitter communities is on that. Because, you know, we had it at kind of a... a a canceling of a person who I think was a bad actor. Um, but like, I was one of the people who kind of knew that stuff, but I didn't step forward until, until it happened. So anyway, I, I don't know that we need to, to litigate that person. I don't plan on it, but it's just one of those things where I'm like, I'm still kind of, I don't know. I just don't know if it's, if, if we handled it right, or if it was handled right or not. Um, but it's, it's well, one of the things where I was happy look. that it ended up in the right place. Look, I, I don't disagree with that. The only thing that I would add to that is I have made a very conscious decision to try to be absolutely as positive on Twitter as I can possibly be. And, yeah. um, you know, I, look, I think there's value uh, in saying, hey, I've had a bad day and, <laughs> you know, it sucks, right? You know, I, I think there's value uh, in, in being human and, and being real. But I also think there's value in trying to put forward a positive, encouraging face to the world. And uh, for one, I think, you know, people like you better when, when you try to do that. And two, I think that's the way you generally have to try to go through life. You know, my wife will laugh when she hears this because she thinks, you know, I'm generally not a very optimistic person. I'm a lender at the end of the day, right? But, <laughs> but you know, uh, you know, to try to find optimism and, and put for, forward an optimistic view of the world is is something that's needed today. So, I think it's actually a pretty unique, a unique concept, or it's a unique characteristic of yours, which is I see people who are more classic kind of allocator personalities. They are often wired to, to see all the stuff that can go wrong, and they're very negative. Um, and they they don't have an optimistic bone in their body. Um, and it's inspiring to see like, okay, you're very much an allocator mindset that, and I would say kind of prototypical one, whereas I'm much more of an operator. Um, but it's cool to see you buck that trend, right? Because so many times I feel like I'm going on Twitter and I'm like, guys, like lighten up. Like the world is not, you know, the sky is not falling. Um, like, and, but they're like, no, no, look. This Ford plant shut down. It's so terrible. It's like, come on. So anyway, I think that that was just my long-winded way of complimenting you that I think it's an awesome combination. Well, thank you. The, look, the, the, there's a risk to it, right? The, the, the risk is, for somebody like me, is, and I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of, you know, very positive DMs saying, hey, I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. You know, that kind of stuff. I've also gotten a fair number of, of negative DMs that, say, oh, you're just a rich guy and, and you know, that's all you are. And, and that's the risk behind it, right? Is if, if keep trying to suggest, hey, there's opportunity here, let's go take advantage of it. 
you know, disasters have a way of not happening, world isn't going to come to an end, you know, all those kinds of things. The risk is you open yourself up to, oh, that's just because you have some money and, and you don't have to worry about this stuff. And Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, we are we are privileged uh, Caucasian men, white men in the United States of America. So I, every day I wake up and and recognize the privilege that that I do have. Um, my my parents are still married, and I graduated without any debt from college. Like I have so much that I have to be thankful for, and to some extent, I feel like I owe the world optimism and being constructive because it's my job to make it. I've given those gifts. It's my job to make the world a better place as much as I can because because of, of that. So anyway. I'm totally with you. Absolutely. <laughs> totally with you. So I'd love to, uh, in the last few minutes that we have, switch gears a little bit. You know, the MES and private lending industry, like with the flood of capital coming in, I'd love to kind of talk about trends that you're seeing. Um, you know, like I've, I'm seeing like private equity firms doing, stru bringing structure finance for, you know, practices in alongside their flagship funds. You know, you're seeing the vistas of the world kind of do some of those things and even kind of the, the more traditional private equity firms. So, and then you're seeing the lenders, you know, seeing more and more when you talk to folks who are classic MES lenders, they're like, no, no, we want to do the whole thing. We want to do a unitronch debt, debt structure for you. So kind of, how are you seeing those things? How's the, how's the whole thing evolving and, and what, what are you seeing in terms of trends? So I think what you're seeing is lots of capital across two primary dynamics. Everyone's raising new funds in the, or has raised new funds in the MES private lending kind of world. So instead of investing, you know, 200, 250, $300 million, they're all investing 650, 750, $850 million. And so they've gravitated up into, in check size. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you need to borrow $50 million or $100 million, you have all kinds of options in order to go borrow that money. Hmm. Okay. Well, what you might say is, okay, well, all those players have vacated the lower end of the spectrum. Matt, life is great. Uh, you know, you have no competition anymore. And, you know, what's happening at, at the bottom end? Well, the same thing has happened on the bottom end. One, I have a lot more competition today from what I would call the rich uncle syndrome. Uh, and I say uncle to, to mean unsophisticated. Uh, I don't want to hang that on, on females that are out there. So, so let's call it rich uncles, rich, unsophisticated uncles uh, that frankly don't know what they're doing, uh, but have some money and they're sitting there saying, you know, to, to sell to the business owner, Hey, you need to borrow a million dollars. You're going to pay me 8%, 10%. Great. Yeah, that's, look, I, I'm only getting 4% over here. I'll, I'll do that deal all day long, right? And so, and so you have a lot of competition there. And then you have a massive amount of technological change that has allowed different organizations to come downstream and to push lending uh, into smaller and smaller check sizes, uh, but put their own balance sheets to work through technology. I had a client uh, that was in the middle of a rollout to Home Depot, uh, and they got a call one day uh, from uh, Home Depot's banker, and 
the banker said, hey, we view your risk of your product in Home Depot as Home Depot risk, not your risk. So we are willing to lend to you at Home Depot rates, borrowing rates, plus a spread. Hmm. And the company said, well, what's the spread? And the bank said, oh, I don't know, 12 or 13 basis points. And they said, so we can go from borrowing from Matt at 15% to borrowing from, and the bank said, yeah, about five, you know, and the company said, okay, where can we do this? You know, and that's just one example of, well, the bank has used technology to be able to lend money uh, to smaller and smaller borrowers. Uh, at at better and better rates, right? By the way, in a different industry, Amazon is doing the exact same thing. Uh, in a different context, Facebook is doing the exact same thing with their balance sheet. And so you see technology uh, making capital more and more accessible across the waterfront. And so uh, competition is increasing uh, everywhere. Would you would you encourage young people to consider getting into private lending as a career? I mean, do you think this is like, <laughs> I'm, curi- I'm curious. You seem to you seem to love it. I'm curious if you think other people would love it as much. I do love it, but I'm a strange strange guy, Michael. Uh, look, it is a look. I love it. You know, if if you know somebody wants to get exposure to it and go work for Apollo or Aries or or you know one of the others and and decide whether or not they want to make a career out of it, go for it. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating business, uh, where, uh, people can, um, you know, look in finance, we are all extremely overpaid for what we actually do in society. And so, uh, if you, if you, if you get into it and you like it, then you want to make some money. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Dig it. So, um, so you've given me advice that I need to go to more lunches. You're exactly right. Do you have any other coaching for me? You've watched me on Twitter for two years now. Anything else you would tell besides less cursing? Anything else you would tell me to <laughs> No, look, I think um not for you, because I think you are great. And I, I really appreciate uh your Twitter presence. I really pre- I consider you a friend. Uh and I, I think you're terrific. If I could give any general advice. Uh, it would be uh, be courageous, be kind. Uh, and uh, there's not enough kindness in the world. There's not enough. There's not enough people that are willing to be vocal about the fact that they're good, kind-hearted people. Uh, and that takes courage. And in fairness, I need to tell you that that you know phrase, "be courageous, be kind," uh, comes from a little girl that wrote that in chalk. Uh, on the sidewalk down at the beach that I was at six months ago, uh, but I thought it was a, a an apt fitting message for the world, and so I repeat it to your listeners: be courageous, be kind. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think that's a great place to finish up. And you know, I told you I was really excited to do this interview today, and I want you to know you did not disappoint. So I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I just really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the forum. And so thank you. Super cool. Well, thanks again for being here Uh, to our listeners. Oh, I have one more question. Is there anything our listeners can do to support you or any of the causes that you are uh, involved in? Any, any ask for, for folks that 
follow me and listen to the podcast? No, uh, you know, I look follow me on Twitter if you're not following me on Twitter. But uh, uh, you know, other than that, you know, just thank you. Super cool. All right. Well, thanks everybody for being here today. Just a reminder: please rate the show in your podcast app so Mirko, our producer, won't beat me up. And uh, do appreciate uh, everybody tuning in today and look forward to hearing feedback on this episode. Thanks again. Bye.